Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troyer, host. And if you're like me, you probably have a Gmail account for your emails. Use Google Maps to look where you're going and to plan trips. And you Google search whatever you're looking for on the web that day. Well, according to Scott Cleland, the author of a new book, Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc., maybe that's not such a good idea. In the book, Scott is going to talk about why Google has a lot of information about you and why it may not be the best thing in the world for you for them to have that information. In just one moment, we're going to hear Scott Cleland. Scott Cleland, hello and welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Tammy. Well, it's good to have you on the program today because we want to talk about your book, Search and Destroy. But before we get into the book, can you tell a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, what your background is, and how you came to write such a book? Yes, uh, um, uh, I am a analyst first and foremost. I've been covering kind of the tech and communication sector for many years. Uh, I um, uh, had worked in government. My last job was a U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in Bush 1 for communications and information policy. But uh, I've been uh, working, uh, worked for investors and worked for companies. But my expertise is mainly at the nexus of um, policy, of markets, and technology. And, and obviously with the company that I, my research company called Precursor, what I really special on it, I specialize in is trying to anticipate uh, the future uh, um, from, whole different, from a lot of different perspectives. That's great. You're a futurist. We here at the Hudson Institute, where I work, are uh, very future-oriented. And um, uh, our founder, Herman Kahn, was all about uh, seeking and trying to predict the future. So we kind of there we are lookers around the bend. Um, as long as we're talking about you, can you tell us a little bit about your co-author, Ira Brodsky? Absolutely. He's uh, the publisher um, of Telescope Books. Uh, he's um, written uh, um, history of wireless, history of medical devices, and other books. He's uh, got a, lo- a long background in uh, in the similar area of tech- technology and communications. He's written for Network World. Uh, we're very aligned in our in our um, uh, kind of view of the world, and also it was really very easy to work together and collaborate. He's a wonderful uh, co-author. I felt a little bad for him because the flap of the book has your bio, but not his. <laughs> Well, but, um, and that's uh, because the the book's ideas and you know all of it is uh, were mine. You know, I um, I probably had about a 50-page outline. All of the conclusions, all of the examples were mine. But I'd never written a book before, and uh, he was a publisher and had, and so he took my ideas and put them in book form. So uh, the reason I'm the author and and out there is is that they're all my conclusions and my point of view. How did you come to write a book on this particular subject? Well, uh, it's really been in works for four years. I've been uh, really focused on it uh, for about 18 months. And that is, uh, I've been um, following uh, Google for a long time, probably uh, about eight or nine years. And uh, it's a very intriguing company. But what really piqued my interest was four years ago, about this time, when uh, Google decided to buy DoubleClick. And I'm also an antitrust expert. I've uh, testified um, uh, many times on antitrust matters, a uh, half dozen more times. Uh, and uh, I was asked to testify on Google DoubleClick. 
And uh, I looked at this and, and realized that I thought um, Google was already trending towards a monopoly. Uh, and um, I thought that that acquisition would basically tip them to monopoly. And I looked at it very differently than others, but I think I looked at it correctly now with history, is, is that what Google at the time was about 50% market share and of search advertising. And what they saw in DoubleClick um, was uh, that it gave them most all of the users, the advertisers, and the publishers that they didn't have. And I thought that's what was most important, and that was the that's the hardest thing in business. I'm an entrepreneur, twice entrepreneur of companies, and getting clients and uh, and you know attracting revenues and whatever. That's the hardest part of business. And what uh, um, double click the way antitrust analysis was they they just looked at it as a vertical merger, and they really weren't direct competitors. So what's the problem? And they didn't really understand that they were both appealing to the exact same audiences users and advertisers and publishers, and the transaction value to Google really was giving them a monopoly, 90 plus percent of the users, about 95 percent of the advertisers, and about uh, um, you know 90 percent plus of the publishers. So DoubleClick had most all of the relationships that Google needed, and it basically tipped them to monopoly. So that's how I got involved in this. And then, uh, you know, Google did become uh, a monopoly, and they uh, basically, power corrupts, and power corrupts absolutely. That's Lord Acton's quote, and that's basically the focus of the book. You say in the book pretty upfront, right at the beginning, that this is the other side of the Google story. And I think we should acknowledge that there needs to be another side, I guess, because the, the primary side is that Google makes a lot of products that a lot of people really enjoy. I mean, I, I know you might chide me for it based on your, your concerns about mm-hmm. the book, but I use Gmail. Google is how I search. My homepage is Google Health to tell me all the health news of the, of the day. I, I, I'm planning a trip, and uh, I'm using Google Maps to do the planning. So I mean, all these are incredibly helpful and useful tools. Absolutely, and I don't quibble with the value they've created, and they, there's a lot of genius there, and they, they do a lot of good. Uh, my point of view is doing good is not an excuse for doing wrong. And uh, um, and what Google has done is fundamentally misrepresented their business to everybody, uh, and so they've um, they systematically and purposefully hide the risks, costs, and dangers of everything they do. And when you become the most powerful company in the world, and you hide all of the downsides, and you get your fingers into everything, they do. Um, you mentioned a few um, services, but they have over 500 applications. And all of them track what you do. And so um, what Google likes to say is we just work for users. We don't have any conflict. You can always trust us. We only care for users. Well, almost all of their $30 billion comes from advertising. Advertising is a great business. I'm a free marketeer. I don't have any problem with that as a business model if one fairly represents. If you look at what Milton Friedman always said, he said, you know, the key to um, fair and open competition is following the rules of the game and not having deception or fraud. And Google is extremely deceptive about what they do and why they do it. And they're very political in kind of always creating an altruistic, uh, Google is wonderful, kind of puppy dogs and rainbow view of the world and hiding all of the downsides. And so the reason I wrote the other side of the, on the story is there's an enormous other side of the story that's very significant. And don't get me wrong. I don't want to have any of the good things that Google does go away. I just basically think they should obey the law. 
They should be as transparent and accountable as they expect everybody else to be. And they should respect people, privacy, and property and the rule of law like they expect everybody else to. So if they were a law-abiding company and an ethical company and one that fairly represented themselves, I wouldn't have a beef with them. You know, th this notion of having a, a beef with them is something that, that int intrigues me. Some of the people who have written about your book call you courageous. Uh, do, do you feel you're courageous? I mean, I, I did a search for Search and Destroy Cleveland, and I got 24,700 results. So it's not being censored. And I, I did the title, um, your, the title in quotes, and then your name in quotes. I still got 11,000 results. So it's not like they're covering up this book that is, is damaging to them. Do you feel you're courageous or bold in some way? Um, well, I certainly know that they um, do everything they can behind the scenes to trash my reputation and to get people to not listen to me. Um, I do um, uh, worry. I, you know, I'm only 51 years old. I expect to li um, live um, uh, many more decades, and I am taking on the most powerful company in the world, and they say they're trustworthy, ethical, and unbiased, and I've written a book for the world to see that um, says, based on the facts, based on the record, that's overwhelming. I have 726 uh, um, endnotes. I have 150 quotes directly from Google, and I'm calling them out as untrustworthy, unethical, and shockingly biased. So, um, I, you know, uh, people that listen, they can judge whether that's courageous, standing up for what's right against the most powerful company in the world. The most impressive thing you said there is that you're 51, which means you were a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at an incredibly young age. Uh, I commend you for that. Um, but you said trashing your reputation, and I, I did a little searching around on, on the book, and it, there, there are some people who say that you're, you're in the pay of uh, AT&T and that Microsoft's paying for you, and that's why you have that attitude. What, what, what do you say to those charges? Well, first of all, when you um, can't refute the message, what do you do? You shoot the messenger. So Google loves to shoot me uh, and try and uh, discredit me personally. Um, I, I'm on the book jacket and elsewhere, uh, I do have a research consultancy. I work for Fortune 500 companies. Some of them are competitive competitors to Google. I mean, I am an, uh, one of the um, world's experts on Google. I've written more uh, antitrust research on Google than anybody in the world, by far. I um, probably have blogged more, over a thousand times in Google than most, most anybody. So, um, you know, my, part of my professional capability is my expertise. Now, uh, um, do I uh, disclose who my specific clients are at any given time? I don't. Google doesn't. If you ask most any company, they don't. But the thing is, is this book stands on its own. It is copiously researched. As I said, there's 726 endnotes. When you go deeper, there's even more in the electronic version. 150 quotes from Google themselves. This book stands on its own. And none of my clients knew this book was being written until it was printed. Did you have any consequences? Did any of the clients say, whoa, you shouldn't be writing that? Uh, I have, um, I, I, I'm blessed that I have a lot of freedom to uh, speak my mind. I, um, I believe I'm a free marketeer. I believe in individualism and privacy and security and property rights. Uh, in, uh, in, in trying to hold people accountable and transparent. So, uh, you know, hopefully that answers your question. Well, let's get to the heart of the book, which is, what is the problem with Google? I mean, you know, their motto is supposedly, don't be evil. Is that motto a lie, inaccurate? Are they evil? Are they 
just not living up to the don't be evil standpoint and and why what what I think in your first section you say that Google is just incompatible with privacy uh, I don't think that the web has to be incompatible with privacy but you say that Google has an approach that that does that can you talk a little bit about that yes let's uh, make sure I address both let's talk about your ethical question and then let's talk about privacy if we talk about um, ethics don't be evil has to be the lowest ethical standard ever devised. Most people would know that the word evil is um, we use for the devil or for Al-Qaeda or for Hitler or for Stalin or, um, or you know, really bad things. And so basically, if you're not doing that, basically anything underneath it uh, is not necessarily prohibited. And when you look at what they do, um, you realize that they're, uh, they're very unethical. And so uh, let's, uh, what do I mean by unethical? If you look at any uh, moral system, any religion or any ethical, they have three things in common. Um, uh, there's respect for people, for property, and for honesty. And the book um, highlights many, many examples where they um, uh, serially disrespect people, they serially disrespect property rights, whole chapter there, and they um, are not honest and forthright about how they represent their business. Um, they also, you know, a general kind of ethical principle is whether or not you follow the golden rule. Do you treat other people the way you want to be treated? And the book is literally filled with examples of how Google treats users and others the way they never would want themselves treated. And then the last reason, you know, basically when you're ethical, you usually follow the law. And Google is one of the biggest scoff laws of any public company. On antitrust, they have five antitrust sanctions in the last 30 months alone. They're being investigated on three continents. For privacy violations of law, they're being investigated in about a dozen countries around the world for Wi-Fi 1 and Wi-Fi 2 scandal. They are currently under criminal investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice for serially over a long period of time of promoting rogue pharmacy sales. Uh, that's basically illegal drug sales. And they were repeatedly warned over a period of years by um, state law enforcement. And finally, the feds came in and are now working with them. And uh, um, they've, I mean, we know from the SEC that, the, um, that Google has put away $500 million for a potential criminal fine. If it was that amount, it would be the third largest criminal fine in U.S. corporate history. So generally, those facts, when people would hear them, would say, you know, do they, um, you know, have a, have a high ethical standard? No, don't be evil's low. Do they follow the golden rule? Absolutely not. Do they um, uh, obey the law? Um, and, you know, I'm not expecting them to be perfect. Everybody makes, makes mistakes. But they have a pattern here on privacy, on property rights, on antitrust, on um, hiding their conflicts of interest. Oh, one other sanction they got is they have a 20-year um, consent decree because they were found to have deceptive trade practices and deceptive privacy practices with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. So it's not only me that's having a problem with them. It's law enforcement around the world. Now, we, uh, do you want to talk about privacy? Sure. All right. Well, on, on privacy... Um, that's probably my single biggest concern, is, is that people don't understand that Google tracks everything. They have, um, uh, you know, search, they obviously know is the database of intentions, but they have YouTube, they have ad serving. Something people don't realize is anytime you go to another website and it takes a few seconds to load, that's an ad being served just for you. So largely, most of the time, that's Google that's serving that to you, and they're tracking and seeing you, even though you didn't know you were, you were on a Google uh, site or through Google Analytics. They so, have, so without ads, the web would be a lot faster? You wouldn't have to wait for load times? 
Oh, that's part of it. Um, that, that is one of the things, but it's also the main tracking feature. But also Android, as we found uh, that you know, there's been a big kerfuffle in the, in the Senate and the House that they realized that Google was tracking without people's permission the, um, a thousand times a day the location of Android smartphone users. And that's one-third of all smartphone users. So um, that's another example of where they've trampled. But basically, um, Google knows what you want, what you think, what you believe, what you read, what you watch, what you intend to do. And they have a really creepy um, kind of uh, way of pushing the envelope. For example, not only do they track everything that you do online, they can track what you do offline. They um, have been found to eavesdrop on your conversation. They read your email. They photograph your house. They want your face print, they want your voice print, and they don't even want to be your wallet. Most people would go, whoa, that's starting to get pretty darn creepy. Now, the thing is, is there's two kind of repercussions of that, is, is that, you know, what's the big deal? Well, that they have the most uber intimate privacy profile that anyone has ever had on millions of people in history. The East German Stasi during the Cold War, secret police would have dreamed to have this type of intimate profile because they could have uh, done a lot with it. Well, Google can do a lot with it and it can fall into the wrong hands. The first thing it can fall into the hands of a rogue Google employee. It's already happened. A Google engineer was stalking teenagers. It can fall into the hands of hackers. It's already happened. Google's entire password system was hacked by the Chinese in December of 2009. It can fall into the hands of the NSA. We know from the front page of the Washington Post that Google works with the NSA or it could fall in the hands of law enforcement without a subpoena because the law has not kept up with the technology. Now, what's the big deal with that? Well, that puts everybody at greater risk of stalking, blackmail, theft, uh, um, fraud, kidnapping, uh, intimidation, harassment, or arrest. Look, in a free country, I'm a free marketeer and believe in, in, in free society. But if anybody has that much intimate um, blackmailable information on anybody, you are not safe and secure. And uh, in a free country, no one should have that kind of profile that can be stolen or used by somebody to do serious harm to people or their families. Now, a lot of these concerns you raise are what I would call secondary concerns, not secondary in that they're not important, but secondary in that Google would not be the primary actor making these things happen. It would be as you say, the Chinese or the NSA or some bad actor or, or so, someone with, with mens rea, as they say. So why is that Google's fault? Well, well, well Tavi, I mean, don't we expect that when you have something that's potentially dangerous um, to others, that you have an obligation to protect it. You have an obligation to make sure it doesn't get out of control. So um, to, to, to imagine that because other people could use Google data in the wrong way, they're the ones, I mean, on security, it's incredibly irresponsible the way they run their business. Is they put, they have something called Big Table, and the way they organize it is they put all of the data in all, all the eggs in one basket. Now, a former State Department person will tell you, I had a security clearance, other people that know in government, what do you do in order to protect yourself from a catastrophic breach? You compartmentalize. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. And Google also cares mostly about speed and about efficiency. And anybody that's involved in security knows how you have more security. You have to put speed bumps in. You have to put um, checks and balances in to make sure that it's safe and secure. And almost whenever Google has a choice between security and speed and efficiency, it always chooses speed and efficiency. 
And when you have all of the world's private information and all the world's property that you're supposed to be protecting, you better care about security. And it's a very low priority to Google, which puts everybody else at great risk. Now, at one point in the book, you talk about the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is a terrorist organization in uh, Israel and Palestinian territories, and how they used Google Earth to plot their terror attacks. Now, let's say Google went away or Google put some limitations, in, in, I don't know, a, a, a terrorist filter on, on Google Earth. Aren't there enough other ways to get that information these days? I mean, there, there's other mapping companies. So is it is it necessarily Google's fault that a terrorist is using their info? Well, I mean, you know, the, um, the, the instance is you know, you're basically saying if, the, if it isn't perfect, then you shouldn't do anything or it isn't their fault. So that's a, a false premise. But, I mean, um, Google um, purposely doesn't check things. It basically has an approach that says we're going to do whatever we want. We're going to throw it out there. And if people have objections, they should tell us. And if we think that they're a significant objection, we'll fix them. So when they put up the satellite images of the White House, they exposed the White House security on the roof. They exposed um, uh, some of our nuclear submarine bays that weren't known to everybody. So because Google doesn't believe in responsibly checking information before it puts it out on the web, it creates a lot of danger for a lot of people. That's just fundamentally an irresponsible practice. Let's take the perfect example of how irresponsible they are in helping terrorists. When Julian Assange stole WikiLeaks, and I thought that was an incredibly despicable act because that has top secret national security cables. It has private information as the information on confidential law enforcement informants, putting them at risk and confidential informants for, um, for our, our secrecy services, that all of that at, uh, um, uh, um, at risk and private information. Now, when Julian Assange came out, PayPal um, uh, was responsible and pulled their funding. Amazon pulled the hosting on, them, shut them down. What did Google do? They decided to increase the risk where every um, uh, uh, newspaper was really quite responsible and they might have written about stories, they redacted the private information that could do really big harm. Google said, hey, we decided at the highest levels, we're going to index it and make it universally accessible and useful to everybody, like their mission says. Well, that means all of those top secret cables were accessible now to al-Qaeda and cyber crooks and, um, and organized crime. That is just monumentally irresponsible um, to, to put out secret, confidential, private, and private property out there for bad actors to have easy access to. You know, a lot, a lot of times when a new company rolls around, people marvel at what it provides. Uh, think about, let's say, a Walmart or Microsoft. People said, hey, this is really great. They've, they've, they've created cheaper new goods, or with Microsoft, they, they've created this great new operating system. But the tide kind of turns, right? So now Walmart is, is widely derided on the left. Microsoft seems to be derided by everybody, not just uh, on political basis, but uh, from a, the, the, tech, the technical people seem to really hate Microsoft. Uh, but what, what about Google? Do you think Google is headed down that path? Are you kind of in the vanguard of creating a, a legion of Google haters? I'm not a Google hater. I want Google to obey the law and be as ethical as they say they are. I'm, I'm a watchdog. Um, you know, I don't have any personal animus to anybody at Google. I don't, um, you know, I don't think they're evil. I think they're untrustworthy, unethical, and shockingly biased. 
I mean, I, I have an analytical approach to them, and, and, and I wish they were as good as citizens as they claim to be and, and they aspire to be. So if I can be, uh, you know, a, a, I'm a watchdog prodding them, I think, you know, the reason I wrote the book is one of the greatest defenses of the, against the problems of, of, of Google is awareness, just simple awareness and having people be accountable because, um, you know, it's the hidden stuff that is dangerous. When it's out in the open, it's not going to be as big an issue. You know, relate, related to that, that last question I had, companies like uh, Walmart and Microsoft didn't really worry about their PR until they started to have these people complaining about them. Google, however, has very carefully managed its PR. It's got this whole don't be evil reputation. It's got this wonderful campus where people play video games and ping pong and show up in shorts and all that. Uh, do, do you think Google is trying to preemptively or has been trying to preemptively quiet its its critics with the sort of uh, uh, the rainbow and, and puppy uh, show that it's been having for the last 10 years? Absolutely. They know exactly what they're doing, and they are masters of uh, public relations. And in doing it, what they've done is become masters of deception and misrepresentation because they don't tell the whole story. And so they are one of the most political and communication savvy entities we have ever seen. And they are masterful. Like, for example, whenever they know they're going to have something go wrong, they have an enforcement action, they're always offering a new product that same day to change the, pro, uh, the to change the subject they earned more kind of earned media than anybody and they you know they they manipulated the press and the thing is i think most of the press now is on them and is a lot more skeptical but uh, um they are just masterful in manipulating perception but as you know it, it can't last because um you know their their record is catching up with them now you're not the only I know you don't like the Google hater phrase, but let's say Google skeptic out there. Uh, what is Google Watch? Can you tell a little bit about them? Um, are, are you talking about uh, um, John Simpson over there? Um, he's an outstanding um, watchdog, and you know he, they're out in California, and they have been uh, you know uh, basically trying to get uh, Google to be better on privacy and better. Um, you know, they go to shareholder meetings and try and uh, get them to be more transparent. Uh, so they're another, you know, uh, another watchdog out there. I mean, there are other people that are critical. They're just, you know, most people are afraid. Google's an incredibly powerful company, and they don't forget. So, you know, um, uh, it, it's, it's not easy being a Google critic. Uh, but rewarding, I guess, in some ways. And on page 51 to 52 of your book, you have a list of what Google knows. And it's really, it's it's a... It's pretty shocking and um, and long list. Um, I will just uh, quickly read some of them. Your interests, desires, and needs, your search history, websites you visit, videos you watch, the news commentary and books you read. Um, and it goes on for almost a full page. Um, and in each one, you have in parentheses what the source is for, the, for that information. Do you think they're trying to build a total profile on each new service they have? They say, oh, this is a missing piece of the profile. Let's add that. I, I think they are collectively doing that. Um, I, I uh, did that. That page comes from my testimony for the House on privacy and Google about how they were the single biggest threat to Americans' privacy, and I called them. Uh, I called them J. Edgar Google in that testimony uh, um, because you know J. Edgar Hoover would have loved to have the information uh, that they have. Another thing for your um, your listeners that um, that really want to delve into how much they know. As you know, um, Admiral Poindexter, former National 
Security Advisor came up with the concept of total information awareness. Well, Google has total information awareness power. And if you want the more comprehensive list, it's a one-page chart, uh, go to um, just Bing, uh, Google, uh, um, I'm sorry, Bing, Total Information Awareness Power, and you'll come to my blog post on it, and click on the one page you're in that, and you will be stunned. I've got this, I always have it right next to my desk, but it basically talks about all of the ways that they can personally identify you. Uh, they know all the ways they can know your location at any given time, how they know your intentions, how they know all your associations, much better than Facebook does, and all the market information they have on supply and demand, and then all of the world's information on top of it. And so they, um, information is power, and they monopolize and have a, a monopoly, a well-known monopoly, on access uh, and, and monetizing uh, access to information. So uh, it is mind-boggling how much information they have. And that's, you know, when you re if you've read the book, you now have your eyes open to how having a sense of how much they know but it is much, much more than we can almost even fathom how much information they have on everybody. And the reason that is, Tevin, just real simply is, everything we do in the real world is very, uh, in the physical world, is very hard to capture. But when you're in the, um, in the internet world and everything's a one and a zero and it's transmitted, anytime anything's transmitted and any content that goes with transmitted, they capture and they record. And so they have just mind-boggling tracking capabilities in almost any dimension you can think of. I mean, you think of all the different ways they can identify you, uh, and they've come up with many more. And they're even interested not only in your, um, in your voice print, your face print, they're interested in your fingerprints, your DNA sequence. It's unbelievable. I noticed a minute ago when you were talking about you wanted to search total information awareness power, you said Bing, using kind of Bing as a verb like people say to, to Google. I don't know if Bing has caught up on as a synonym for search yet, but were you saying that because you prefer the Bing search engine because of your concerns about Google, or were you saying in, if you did that search via Google, it wouldn't come up because Google has blocked that site? No, Google doesn't cite it, and I think Google has the world's best search engine. I've said that many times. It's not that them, they don't provide a lot of value and that they don't do a lot of really good things. Uh, and, and, and they know better than to block my stuff. Can you imagine? I would scream like a, a stuck pig if they um, were blocking my site. And, and, and a lot of people read me, and everybody would know it. So it would be pretty dumb for, uh, dumb for them to do that. I didn't hear you. You there? Do, do you just prefer Bing because of the privacy concerns? Um, yes. And, uh, you know, I generally, uh, I can't say I never use Google products because I do, because uh, it's very hard not to. But uh, when I have a choice and when I can, I don't use them. Getting back to your background for a second, you're a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. How does that background help you in terms of co coming up with uh, your, your approach to Google and, and writing this book? It helped me dr dramatically. Uh, um, one of the tasks I did for um, former Secretary of State is I was the person that briefed him whenever he went to Capitol Hill. And so I was the one that had to anticipate and understand all of the big hot issues and how they fit together. And I, it was my job to brief him to, you know, on anything that he'd be asked in the world in a, in a few hours. I did it about 40 times. So I have uh, well-developed skills of anticipation of what's important, what's not, and how uh, to see the world whole, how things fit together. 
It also gave me a, um, a you know a good experience in understanding the Soviet Union. I was there during Bush one, as you know, that was the fall of the Soviet Union. And so I have a very healthy respect of what totalitarianism is. And as you know, in the book, I refer to um, what Google is trying to do is centrally plan an economy in a society. And um, what they couldn't do in the Soviet Union, you can do now because you have the Internet and you have everything being recorded. And um, my one of my I think one of my biggest insights in this book was that um, a computer program at its most basic level is programming an outcome you want. You basically are automating something to give you a planned outcome. That's what a computer program is. We program it to do something. Well, and our artificial intelligence helps uh, helps computers do that. Well, what Google is is they're computer programmers, computer scientists, data miners. Everything they do is programmed to plan out a outcome, and they have really big biases of what outcome they want. They do, one bias is they want transparency over privacy. Another bias is they want information property to be free and not private property. And they have a lot of other um, biases that are in there. And when you centralize control of access to information and, and like they have, they rival what the Soviet Union would have dreamed to be able to do. And so my experience at, at the State Department gives me a global perspective. It gives me um, a perspective of knowing the value of, of uh, how important it is to protect top secret information and secret information. Uh, my experience in government with law enforcement makes me know how critical it is to protect um, law enforcement sources and methods. And so, you know, I, I'm not a Bambi here. I'm somebody who's, who has a lot of experience in a lot of things. You know, my experience, actually, I, I had a, my, um, a research broker dealer. So I'm an entrepreneur and ran a, a research broker dealer, and I understand how capital markets work. And I have a, an expertise in algorithmic markets as well. And Google has, um, it has um, it says it has auctions, but it doesn't. It corners markets, and it's not transparent, and it's not an honest broker. So that's just yet another dimension of, of the problems I have and foresee Google having. You mentioned Google's biases. Let's talk about one of their biases, uh, the political bias. You say that 98% of Google donations have gone to Democrats and that uh, Brin and Schmidt each gave $25,000 to the Obama transition. Is it a democratic allied company and also would you say that they're disappointed with the Obama administration because of the investigations you mentioned like the, the Obama Department's uh, of Justice investigation of them all of those things you said were, were facts I don't have a problem in a free country they can have whatever um, you know they can support whoever they want politically what I disagree with um, them on is their political values in their mission People think, oh, it's nice and benign. It's not benign. There are two um, political values embedded in their mission to organize the world's information and make it universally available that I strongly disagree with. They don't believe in, um, in privacy. They want radical transparency. They don't believe in um, private property. They want to basically redistribute all the information property uh, and without permission or payment to everybody, and they're the only ones that can monetize it. And, uh, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's just mind-boggling, as I said before. You know, they um, the quintessential example of their political values at work is they aided and abetted um, the despicable Julian Assange to do what he couldn't do, which he wanted all these cables to get out, and Google did it for him. So 
My beef um, and my disagreement with Google that I think is dangerous for a free society, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, a liberal or a conservative or independent, anything in between. In America, you need to have privacy because if you don't have privacy, you don't have security, you don't have safety and you're not an individual. You have no dignity. And if you don't um, uh, have property rights, you're a serf. So basically, if we don't have privacy and property, we're going to be Google surf online. At the last page of your book, after your conclusion, you have the Google Code, a satirical look at Google's <laughs> guiding principles. Do, do you have that handy? Do you want to talk a little bit sure. about that? Let me grab that. Sorry. just had to reach over here. Um, thank you for doing that, because that was one of my um, favorite parts of the book. And hopefully, uh, um, you know, it shows that I do have a little bit of a sense of humor on this. And so we talk about the Google Code, and the first one is the Google Rule. Whoever controls others' information rules. The Google Golden Rule, treat others as Google does not want to be treated. Three, more, Google's moral rel relativism, implying that others are evil makes Google look ethical. Four, Google's moral compass, quote, evil is whatever Sergey says is evil. That was my favorite one. <laughs> uh, and then five, Google Code of Ethics, also Eric Schmidt. Quote, the Google policy on a lot of things is to get right up the creepy line and not cross it. Ouch. But you think uh, they do cross it. Oh, they cross it all the time. Six, Google's rule of thumb. If it doesn't scale, it can't be monopolized. Seven, Google's law of free. A sucker is born every minute. Uh, eight, Google's law of privacy. Profiling is in the eye of the beholder. Nine, Google's law of property. All good things come to those who take them. And lastly, um, Google's law of innovation. If at first you don't succeed, buy whoever did. Thank you for that. Let me ask one last question before we get to our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy. And the, and the last question there is, uh, how would you de-Googleify? What would you recommend to people who hear this podcast, are terrified, start, start ripping their hair out and saying, what can I do about the Google menace? Well, I'd first of all, I'd have, them, I'd have them take a, a few breaths. And, uh, um, and, and first, I would suggest that they um, not use Google um, search unless they need to, if they can't find something from Bing or somewhere else. I would tell them to get off Gmail uh, because Google reads, reads that. Uh, um, I would tell them uh, to uh, be very wary of, of, the, of the services that they have. That they, um, and I would uh, encourage them to talk to their uh, congressman or senator or write them uh, to uh, to basically bolster privacy laws so that they can have better protections. Okay. And, and that last one gets into what I call our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, is what have you learned as a result of this book that you would recommend as a public policy suggestion for going forward? Or what public policy proposals would you push forward as a result of what you've learned in the book? Well, this it put me in a difficult position to do, but I and no, no other book had really come up with public policy things, and I felt that um, my book needed to do it since I was being so uh, critical. And I'm a free marketeer. I don't like big government. I don't like getting government involved when um, when necessary. But I am a Milton Friedman person. I know that you know without contracts, without law enforcement against deception and fraud, and people don't follow the rules. You, you can't have a free market. It, 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 it um, falters into chaos. So my uh, recommendations were, um, I think, quite measured and, uh, and, and reasonable, and I think they won't be, uh, work perfectly, but they'll get us a long way. And I want to underscore, 
I don't want to undo any of the good things that Google produces. I want to make sure that the bad doesn't continue. And so the first thing is, is I, I think everybody that reads the book and everybody out there should expect the golden rule. They should expect Google to treat them the way they want to be treated. And that is where it'll really hurt Google is if users start saying, look, in order to, for me to trust you, you have to treat others the way you want to be treated. None of this thing where, you know, um, they won't eat their own cooking. <coughs> Excuse me, Tim. So, I mean, that's one of the biggest problems. So the, the second thing I recommend is basically law enforcement enforce the law. Google is a notorious scofflaw. And, they, um, and um, one of the things is we know from another book on Google is, is that Google's founders just have a very little respect for the rule of law or for precedent. I mean, that's coming from Google's top lawyer uh, in, in, a, in a book. So um, law enforcement, huge. If they, if they were a law-abiding citizen, most all of the problems with Google would go away. The next thing is, is I think people that, are, that feel harmed should avail themselves of the process and sue Google, either class action on privacy, on security, on um, hiding their, their hidden conf, uh, conflicts of interest, not being honest. Uh, you know, all of those things, they should sue, that, that use their individual right in the, in the court system to bring some discipline here. Um, uh, I would, uh, one of the things is they need oversight. Both the, um, the SEC and the CFTC need to be aware that Google has an enormous amount of inside information and need to be monitored so they don't uh, use uh, corner markets uh, or manipulate uh, markets. Uh, the Federal Election Commission needs to wake up and realize that Google is the only entity in the world that has, because they give away free YouTube, they give away Gmail, they give away ad, man ad uh, management software, uh, Google Docs, uh, Google Groups, all these things, they're the only entity that knows every camp candidate and every campaign's funders, supporters, uh, target voters, and all the hot buttons, they think. So they have perfect kind of political electoral, electoral knowledge. And the ability to use it for one way or the other is um, staggering. And so that's probably my, my single biggest fear is, is that Google, if it wanted to, could tilt elections. And let's remember that the 2000 presidential election was decided by 300-odd votes in, um, in Florida. In uh, 2004, it was decided by several thousand in Ohio. So it doesn't take much to tilt an election. And since everybody's search results are personalized now, it's very hard to know whether or not they're skewing them in a, in a politically biased way. And so um, I think the Federal Election Commission needs to be very, very vigilant. Everybody needs to be vigilant there. So that's another recommendation. I, um, I think they need to have um, enterprise-level security. This consumer-grade security they have being the largest repository of all the world's private in, uh, in information and private, prop, private property, it's incredibly irresponsible that they still have consumer-grade. They need to be the Fort Knox of companies, and they need to be the best because they have more sensitive information than anybody has in the world. And then my last thing is, we, um, the one piece of legislation or piece of legislation I think we need is we need privacy laws. And the reason is, is as a free marketeer, what you have now is consumers, if they have no privacy, they have no bargaining power. They have, um, they have no protection. They have, they have nothing. They've lost their individuality. They've lost their, 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 their bargaining power. And um, if you can't have a standard level of privacy, um, the individual um, is really, really at risk long term. 
And, uh, and I'm a big uh, believer in individualism and a lot of entrepreneurial, um, a, lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs are now individual entrepreneurs on, on the net. I believe that we need do not track legislation. Um, uh, I, you know, it basically gives every American choice. If you don't care about your privacy, you don't have to get on a do not track list, like the do not call list. But if you do care intimately about your privacy, you should be able to protect yourself, your, your family, your children, and say, I don't want them to be tracked. You should have the sanctity of saying, having some privacy that says, I don't want to be tracked. Because remember, this is targeted advertising. If it's targeted, you're the target. If you're a target, you're prey. And no one wants to be anybody's prey because you can, that same information that's used for advertising can be used for all sorts of nefarious purposes, if they know um, all that, if they know your location, if they know your vulnerability points, they know what you like, they know the way to impersonate you or be an imposter. I mean, it's just mind-boggling how much risk they put people at. So every individual in America, if they pass privacy, um, uh, do not track list, they could at least say, "I am one of the people that doesn't want my secure uh, my privacy um, uh, breached, and I would like some protections." from Google and others that collect my uh, private information. And if, uh, over time, that's not a perfect solution, but anybody who was caught still tracking would have multi $10,000 fines. And if that would, they did that with millions of people, it would get in a real chunk of change and shut business down if they didn't obey the law. So those are my solutions. There you have it. Policy recommendations from Scott Cleland, the author of Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc. Scott, thank you for joining us today on New Books in Public Policy. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful interview, and I appreciate the time you gave to it. You've been listening to an interview with Scott Cleland, the author of Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc. As you can tell from the interview, he is not a big fan of Google. He has a lot of concerns about your privacy and what Google's plans are to do that they are able to glean from you and all the information that you provide them. So if you are worried about Google, give some advice for how to de-Googlify and think about that in the next week. But until then, as always, New Books in Public Policy, this is Heavy Troy. My advice to you is to keep reading. <laughs>